Hi, I'm Sharon Davis, Chief Executive of Young Enterprise, and welcome to Series 3 of Enterprising Mindset, Minding Your Money. We'll be exploring the often overlooked role that mindset plays in building financial capability and the benefits to be gained from understanding the impact our attitudes, beliefs and values have on our behaviours around money. I'm hoping we'll discover new ways to help young people build a money-related mindset and also explore the contribution this could have in increasing social mobility in the future. Now, my guest today is the former Secretary of State, the Right Honourable Justine Greening. Justine was born in Rotherham when she attended the Oakwood Comprehensive School and later graduated from the University of Southampton. Justine was Secretary of State for Education and Minister for Women and Equalities from July 2016 to January 2018. Previously, she served as the Secretary of State for International Development, Secretary of State for Transport and also the Economic Secretary for the Treasury. Since leaving the government, Justine has co-founded the Social Mobility Pledge, a coalition of over 550 businesses and 50 universities globally that have committed to being a force for good by putting social mobility at the heart of their purpose. And she chairs the levelling up goals, the architecture that's established by the members of the Social Mobility Pledge to support truly purpose-led organisations. Justine, it's an absolute pleasure to chat to you on Minding Your Money. Really pleased to be to be on the podcast, actually, and great to talk to you again, Sharon. You've been quite busy since you've left the government. <laughs> I suppose it's why I left the government, because I wanted to be busy. Not that I wasn't in government, but I just wanted to be busy on social mobility. And so I think you tend to regret what you don't do, not what you do do. And I thought, I've got to crack on with my social mobility work. And, and obviously, at the time, I was Secretary for Education. Theresa May wanted to, meet, wanted to put me in another department, which you know would have been an amazing opportunity. But I just wanted to put my time into social mobility. Um, been such a big part of my own life and and so yeah I was out of government I got the social mobility pledge going we've really built it up you know we're just doing tons and tons and tons and and I think I'd never have got a chance to do that if I hadn't taken that step well, you are a true example of authenticity, I think, you know, walking and breathing. And I've got so many questions for you around social mobility. But let's, so let's get started. My first question, I'm actually going to take you back to growing up in Rotherham. Who and what were your early memorable influences that informed your attitude and mindset around money? Well, I suppose it was definitely my parents. I grew up in a very working class house. Um, my dad spent quite a while out of a job and even when he was in a job it was low pay I mean he would have benefited from the minimum wage you know it was jobs like his that got helped by that what did he do he well he worked at British Steel just like my granddad and then as there were fewer and fewer steel jobs in Rotherham I think like well hundreds of other local people he lost his job and and then he had to find something else and, and it was finding something else that was the problem because he wasn't really um, skilled particularly and there weren't many jobs. I mean, there weren't any jobs. So when he finally got a job, it was filling up vending machines um, and that's what he then did. And then he got another job working back in a factory in the stores and he was really good at that. Um, they probably totally undervalued him. Um, but yeah, my earliest memories were really seeing my mum and dad in the kitchen looking down at the counter was a bit of paper that was our shopping list for Asda and tossing it all up with a calculator 
carefully to make sure that what they were planning to get at the supermarket was what we could afford because they didn't want to get to the till and suddenly find out they didn't have enough money. I would have been about 10, I guess, when I was I was seeing that. And, you know, they were just they just had to be very, very careful. And I remember once going to the butchers to get my mum some meat, you know, just to sort of run an errand really for her. And she asked for five pounds of whatever it was. And I bought her five pounds of the meat. But what I hadn't realised is she meant five pounds in weight, not money. And we just literally, I had to take it back. And then when I took it back, the butcher, of course, said, I can't have it back because you've taken it. So, so yeah, I just remember feeling really upset because I'd wasted money that I knew we didn't have. Um, and I hadn't meant to, but, you know, so it was just this sense of it, it was a real thing. And if you didn't deal with it, well, it was a real problem for our family. And and I suppose I grew up thinking I never want, and my parents grew up thinking that for me, then none of us wanted me and my sister to be in that situation when we were adults. And in what ways do you think that those early influences have stuck with you regarding that emotional relationship with, with money? I think, I think it's often, I think twofold in a way. Um, I think it made me anxious about money um, and not having enough of it. And, you know, that wasn't something I just, as it were, shook off, mainly because I thought going to university and getting a job would fix it all. And, of course, actually what happened was, A, I left university with a a little bit of a debt, not anywhere near as much as, as young people today. But So I had some debt, and there was a point at which... I was spending more money because were sending me more letters telling me I needed to put money in my account. And I was like, well, I would put money in my account if you didn't spend a tenner every time you wrote to me telling me I didn't have enough money in my account. And they were actually spending more of my money than I was. It's just hugely stressful and upsetting. And so I ended up going to another bank, which was Lloyd, saying, I I don't know what to do. Can you help me? And they did. And, And we switched over my account and they sorted me out with a proper loan and a proper overdraft, and I'm still I'm still a customer with them then, um, just because you know at that time when I really needed some help and advice, because of course I knew my parents couldn't get me out of any problems with um, owing money. Um, that that bank helped, so yeah. And then I guess when I started a job, which I, which I suppose we all assume that when you're working it, it fit fixes everything and and actually what I hadn't really anticipated was that I have lots of expenses going into a new job I had to buy suits and things and I had to get a car and so it took you know it was only as I got further on in my career and if you like all the effort I put into my education started genuinely literally paying off that I cleared that debt and I was able to start thinking, right, I can get some money behind me. But I guess the second thing, other than being anxious about money, was for a very long time, I sort of had this sense I needed to keep getting more. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Never feeling quite safe. Yeah, that you feel you're okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember yeah. going at university, going to the cash point and just this moment where I had to find another cash point because there wasn't a note in the cash point that was small enough for Mm. my account to let me have it. I needed Mm. a fiver because that's all I could take out. Yeah. Um, And it didn't have a fiver and so I couldn't have any money. 
and it that was embarrassing because I'd queued up and then I had to walk off with nothing but yeah so that's my earliest memories is money was a problem and and it was something that worried me I'm listening to you there and it's sometimes even though your needs might change and you you know your salary might change sometimes that mindset and attitude to money stays with you doesn't it that anxiety Mm. and perhaps never feeling quite safe yeah I guess so and it's such a framing for you of everything because like most people, you you just have to trade off like what opportunities you want. I, I never went on a gap year or anything like that because I just thought I can't afford to. And so it kind of percolates. And yet, presumably, it would have been an amazing experience. And um, I remember doing a job interview where they basically didn't give me the job because they said, oh, you don't really seem to have had much worldly experience. And I thought, well, no, I haven't. But then, like, I couldn't really afford to around the world for a year um not necessarily any much money and so I, I think it did kind of it does shape a lot of people's frame of reference um because you're always worrying that even if you spend money now that somehow you'll wish you hadn't yeah <laughs> because something will happen yeah yeah, yeah. And just listening to you, and again, there was there that reference of, well, I haven't been on the gap year. And there's that, that whole reference about your personal network around you having so mm. much influence on your life chances. And I can hear, and having seen your career, just how passionate you are about social mobility. Um, so I'm going to ask you some questions about the co-founding of the Social Mobility mm-hmm. Pledge and you check the chairing of the Leveling Up Goals. And I, you know, I'd love you to tell us a little bit about the Leveling Up Goals. You were involved, weren't you, in the ESG um, goals, weren't you? Yes, the Sustainable Development Goals, yeah. Just tell me a little bit, bit more about the background to developing the Social Mobility Pledge and, the, and of course, the Leveling Up Goals. The Social Mobility Pledge was me basically saying to businesses, come on, you lot, don't need to wait for government to do everything. If you want to drive more social mobility with the opportunities you've got as companies, you can do it. You just need to think more strategically about who and where you are finding your talent. And so I'd done lots of work as Secretary of State for Education on apprenticeships. And through that, it had really struck me how passionate a lot of companies were about the wider skills agenda, the opportunities that they could give young people. And and I was forever saying to them, you know, you lot should do more, you know, like, don't just think about apprenticeships, think about everything else you can do. And, and they'd always sort of say, well, what do you want us to do, Justine? And I, having spent 15 years in business before I became an MP, I thought, well, you need to make it simple, you need to give them a really clear cut ask of it's this, this and this. And that was the social mobility pledge, you said, get into schools and give them a sense of the careers you've got, open your door so young people can get work experience so they can get the chance of an apprenticeship with you and make sure your recruitment processes are fair and they're not screening out this wider talent pool just because it's maybe not the university you've always taken all your talent from for example or it's a graduate you need when actually frankly you can get different pipelines different things like apprenticeships so that was the pledge. And we just got this incredible response from companies. Um, I mean, of course, no one had to do it. I mean, I wasn't Secretary of State, so they could have all said, I don't want to. But actually, as I'd hoped, they were all hugely pro thinking about it and doing more and making commitments. And, and now we've actually probably got the best part of 700 companies involved and lots of universities involved. So it ended up being this just fab ecosystem of 
people in the education system who really are passionate about leveling up and social mobility and then people in business and employers who also want to be part of the solution. And so we've been growing that coalition, bringing them together, working out what they all do that works and then spreading that best practice. And in a sense, the leveling up goals, which we launched earlier on in 2021, was really all of us trying to get a bit more organized, to be honest, Sharon. So I, I'm a very ordered person and I, I hate mess. And so, <laughs> and, and so I thought, oh, God, all these ideas, it's great, but I need a bit of structure here because it's driving me mad. And so we came up with the leveling up goals, um, mainly because I realized that I'd seen exactly this kind of problem before. And that was when I was development secretary doing the sustainable development goals. And so that was a complex problem on development, country development, and you needed to break it down into its constituent parts and do that in a way that could bring together governments, businesses, and civil society. And I see levelling up as a development challenge for Britain. You know, I think we need to get better, and I don't think we are where we need to be. And so the levelling up goals are almost this companion set of goals that cross over but then extend beyond the sustainable development goals, and they work the same way. And we've been putting together the metrics. Um, We've had some brilliant engagement from the Office for National Statistics as well on that. So I feel like we've come a long way, actually, um, Mm. in quite a short space of time. And there are three levelling goals specifically focused on education, aren't there? So there's strong foundations in early years, successful school years, positive destinations post-16. And we know a child's early experiences of education has been identified as a significant impact on that that young person's ongoing social mobility. How important do you believe that it is that beginning to understand money forms part of that early educational experience? I think it's crucial because, as for me, probably everyone your early experience of money and you're going to have it one way or another you'll be growing up in a family where money's no object or you'll be growing up in a family of you know average means um and 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 unless you have proper financial education then that's the education you get and so what I never knew was that actually money is not just a cost for your life it can be something that's an investment in the future it can be something that you invest to start a business. And yet, although I was interested in starting a business, I just remember thinking, God, if I take a loan on because I've got no money and then I, I, the business doesn't work, then that's it. And I thought I can't afford to do, I can't afford that risk. And so financial education, I think, is not just about getting people comfortable so they're not anxious about money. It's also about the skills it can teach you that open up the opportunities that money can give people when they know how to manage it and invest it well. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely. And successful financial education should lead to increased financial capability. Do you see financial capability contributing to social mobility? Do you think there's a link there? Totally, yeah. I think if I think there's there's almost these two bits of social mobility. One is a ladder, and we want that ladder to climb up to be there for for everyone. And that's why we do all the work with the companies. It's why things like technical education matter, because, you know, you've got to make the rungs work for everyone, not just some people. But actually, fundamentally, 
having the ladder is one thing, but people feeling they can climb up it is another. And so that often for them, they might have the confidence to go for an opportunity. They might have the knowledge and skills they need, but it might be resources and choices over resources that is the thing that holds them back. And so you really need that financial education so that that's not the thing that gets in the way if everything else is there for them to be able to get on in their life. You know, as it was, I never thought probably long enough, hard enough, seriously enough about doing a business because I didn't think I'd ever get any money. But actually, um, had that barrier been addressed, yeah, maybe, maybe I would have done the other bits of the equation and got on with it. I probably would have done, to be honest. So it does matter. Um, I think it's directly relevant to opening up opportunities for people. And that's why one of those levelling up goals is also goal seven, which is around access to affordable credit and savings. I spoke with Saeed Acha, who's a former Social Mobility Commissioner, and he was very passionate um, about just really further research being undertaken into the the, the contribution of financial capability. Because he was saying, well, if you get access to how to budget, access to even like how to do price comparisons, mm-hmm. how to take appropriate risk, all of those would enable a set of actions that could actually put you ahead quite further, potentially years from someone who doesn't have access to those um, to that inform those informed choices, totally. And actually, what's interesting is, I mean, people do do a maths GCSE. You could easily see how that curriculum could be tilted towards mm. taking on board some of those core mathematical calculations that managing money involves, and you could easily see how some of those numbers or more of them that you're studying as part of your maths GCSE have a pound sign in front of them. And you literally just get used to doing calculations that involve currency and money rather than just numbers without any meaning. And I I think all of this is absolutely possible to do. I don't think all of it happens in school. I think some of it's about parents. I think some of it's about, you know, those other other interactions we have as young people you know sports club whatever um I remember the first time I ever probably saved was that I was desperate to try and get on this school ski holiday at Oak Comprehensive and I did a paper round and I used to stuff that money into a jam jar I think I had a little I stuck a little sticker on the side of it saying nobody's allowed to open this jam jar apart from Justine Greening um (laughs) you will be found or something like that but you know that was my that was my earliest savings account that jam jar um and i was saving for something i used to add up the money and i used to know how much that ski holiday was going to cost and work out just how just how many paper rounds i was going to have mm. to do great maths learning though and it kind of links me to to my question around mindset because what you've just described there is a very very kind of enterprising mindset and you know an individual's mindset can have a significant influence on how they approach challenges and opportunities and as as you know at young enterprise we talk about helping young people develop an enterprising mindset as well as their financial capability in your view how important is mindset in you know attaining or increasing social mobility i think it's a really important part of the mix you know there are all these different things and they all actually matter but mindset is definitely one of them because Actually, you can end up holding yourself back, let alone what anyone else is doing in your life, if you don't have the right mindset and if you haven't 
being able to be encouraged to think more broadly about what your opportunities are. It is literally the beginning of opening up opportunities for people is, is them wanting them in the first place. But I think how you do that, and this is where it all fits quite systemically, is often changing that mindset is seeing a role model that, oh God, I could be like them. You know, I used to switch on TV and people who were doing businesses looked like they were doing very well financially. And I used to think, oh, that looks interesting. And and I'd be able to earn some money doing that as well. So it, it's all of these things tie together, but it is fundamentally that person feeling like there are opportunities out there and, and that's their attitude is that they're going to be able to go and get some of them, I think. And that they're comfortable, as you were saying, Sharon, dealing with money and that that's not going to be a barrier. Um, that's the beginning, I think, of people being able to make the most of the potential that they have. And we talk a lot, don't we, about financial education being a preventative action, perhaps preventing poor financial choices, preventing fraud, scams. But just listening to you, perhaps we should be considering the enabling effect of financial education more to enable, you know, you to fulfil your goals. You know, is there more that we can do in that around levelling up? Yeah, and I think it comes back to your previous question on mindset. I think we need to be pitching it as an opportunity rather than a threat for people. I think we should be absolutely making sure they don't fall into some of the pitfalls of not managing money well. But I also think we should be framing it differently as this is how you can be in a position to take opportunities. And the key really is, I think, as you were just saying, starting to understand how we can deliver good financial education. What's the right format? How do different young people take on board different points? Um, and how how are we actually going to get people up that learning curve? And for people who are adults and already into their adult life who perhaps you know just have a bad experience or don't have that confidence it's not just about young people in school it's also about adults you know being able to perhaps from the financial services provider whoever it is get really good consistent advice and especially to be honest as everything moves online and that makes it a lot easier to access your account and to get stuff done But actually, if you're not sure what you need to do and if you need advice, the fact that there are fewer bank branches, for example, might well mean that people are a little bit less likely to have some of those conversations. But maybe they were also people who would have never dared walk into a bank branch and say, I don't know what kind of pension I need. Can you help me? So I think I think it's about understanding how we do all of this in a more digital world. Um, and then there's actually quite a lot of opportunities to give people easier advice, but we do need to sort of think our way through all of these challenges. And then that is also about how you grow financially capable communities, because you mentioned before, young people will learn and access role models from different places. Perhaps somebody will will gain what they need from school, others won't. So, you know, the importance of youth clubs, the importance of having um, that financial champion who is perhaps somebody that works in the community centre or... And I just think there is more that we can do to connect the support infrastructure for young people. Have you got a view on that? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, that's why what Young Enterprise does is so brilliant because it is part of how there's that wider civil society push out there that is helping young people get not only comfortable with money, but see the opportunities that enterprise, for example, can bring to 
to making money and to being able to invest it in an idea and a project that you have. And it's all of these touch points. And, and I just think in, in and amongst that are some quite consistent um, models almost for how people take on board stuff and change. I think there's a bit of it that we know is about school and just literally getting the facts, if you like, and sometimes this knowledge and skills. But we're also seeing that it often needs to be reinforced by something they come into contact with outside of school, whatever it is, whether it's a local youth club, whether it's like me and it's going down to the swimming club, um, whether it's, I don't know, being part of scouts or whatever, whatever young people are doing. It's about having all those influences push in the same direction. If you haven't got a lot of money at home, then how are you going to learn how to manage it? If your mum and dad aren't going to be able to say, well, you look after this holiday kitty or I don't know, whatever it yeah. be. Um, yeah. And that's, or if you don't get pocket money. Yeah, you don't get pocket money, exactly. Um, so that I, I had to manage my paper round money. If I hadn't had a paper round, who knows? So I think if you're not going to get that practical experience at home, then yeah, it absolutely has to come from somewhere else, doesn't it? And that's where consistency of opportunity, something I know that you have championed for a number of years now, uh, really comes into play, doesn't it? You know, it shouldn't be a lottery. Correct. And it's about saying there's a sort of universal piece of this, which is what the levelling up goals is about saying, actually, it's a bit like a leaky bucket. If any of these holes aren't properly plugged, then that person will find it a lot harder to make the most of their potential. But at the core of all all of that is resources and being able to manage your resources, feel comfortable doing that, and then find resources when you've got stuff you want to do in your life that means you need to get a loan or you need some capital. And and all of that flows from, you know, an early engagement with money that means people don't find it a scary thing. Justine, sadly, I have another 150 questions for you, but we're coming towards the end of the interview. Um, I do have a couple of cracking questions from young people to ask you if you've, if you've got time. My first one is, what are you most tempted by when it comes to a spending spree? Oh, that is a good question. I'll tell you what, I, well, my instant answer is plants. I absolutely love, yeah, I'm a big gardener and I just love plants. I would have tons and tons and tons of them. My problem, Sharon, is our garden's tiny. (laughs) I pull up and I'm like, no. So now we've got lots of tubs and pots with plants in them. And uh, I'm like, how many tubs am I allowed to have in this garden before there's no actual decking to sit on anymore plants uh okay this is the last one now um how can we make conversations about money more relatable to young people that question's from dylan from wigan youth zone well i think you've got to you've got to relate it to what young people are spending money on so i think it's as simple as that you know like this equates to i don't know five chinese takeaways you know i I do sort of feel like it's got to be or X outings to the cinema or nights. I think you've just got to relate it to people's actual lives because um, otherwise it's just a number and it doesn't really feel like it's it means so much. 
relatability again comes yeah. through very strongly there. Um, Justine, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you for the incredible work that you do to highlight the needs to increase opportunities for our young people across the country, as well as the brilliant work you've done to develop tangible levelling up goals to help young people unlock their potential. Um, And thank you so much for wrapping up our Minding Your Money podcast series. Well, thanks very much, Sharon. And of course, Young Enterprise is brilliant on levelling up because it's helping people create their own opportunities, which is fantastic. So thanks for having me on. Thank you. So that's it for this series. Uh, If you'd like to access series one and two, please do subscribe to Enterprising Mindsets on your favourite podcast service. We'd love you to leave a review as well if possible. So thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.